Hello. Okay, so I'm Jenny, for those of you that don't know. And uh, we, uh, last week we started our new series, which is um, Teach Us to Pray. And we're using the Psalms as a way of praying. So uh, James kicked off the series last week. And uh, if you weren't here last week, then I really want to encourage you um, to listen to James's talk. And you can listen to it by going on SoundCloud and finding New Community Church or the better way is through Church Suite. And if you haven't got Church Suite and you don't know what that is, then please speak to someone with a lanyard afterwards and they'll get your details. Or if we've already got your details and you haven't got a link to Church Suite, you can find out what's going on in the church. But you can also listen to the talks, um, not just in Alton, but you can listen to the talks from the other venues as well. So we'd really like to make sure you've got that. So that's my little plug for listening to that. So for those of you that um, weren't here last week, that didn't listen to the talk, or for those of you that have perhaps forgotten what James said, I'm sure there's nobody like that, but um, just to <laughs> briefly summarise some of James's point, and the reason I'm doing that is to give us a context of where we're going today. So, prayer. And uh, he did say, you know, prayer is one of those things that we often preach about prayer and everyone sits there and thinks, oh, I'm not so good about praying. And the aim is that hopefully by the end of not just this talk, but by this series, to just feel more equipped and inspired um, that, you know, we can pray. And I think a lot of the words that were coming through today actually link a lot with what I've got planned um, to say. So prayer is about asking for things. And that's biblical because in uh, James chapter 4, verse 2, he said, uh, it says, you do not have because you do not ask. So God wants us to ask for things. In Matthew 7, it says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open to you. So yeah, when we pray, we're asking for God for things. But prayer is much more than this. And God gave us the Psalms to teach us how to pray. And the Psalms were the corporate prayers of the Jews in the Old Testament, but also we see them in the New Testament as well. So in Ephesians 5, it says, Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So Psalms have got a really important part to play. And our tendency can be to pick and mix the Psalms, Because we have uh, that tendency to look for ones that express how we're feeling at a particular moment in time. But that's not how they're designed to be used. So last week, James took us through Psalms 1 and 2. And and really, this is where you need to listen to the talk. And explained how the Psalms were fulfilled in Jesus. And what he was saying was, when we realise that the Psalms are not primarily about us, then we read them in a different light. And he quoted from Augustine, who's a 4th century theologian. And he said, When you sing the Psalms, you are actually singing the songs of Jesus, with Jesus as your song leader. Jesus is the song master, and we are the choir. Rather than listening to a choir of many singers, you are joining the choir. His song is being performed and the rest join him in singing it. So when we read the Psalms, there are bits that we can relate to and bits that we can't relate to because we kind of go, well, that's not me. That's outside of my experience. But they are the experience of Jesus. And as Christians, we are in Christ and that's the bit that changes everything. 
And because we are in Christ, we can join in and make them our prayers, our songs, because what Jesus has already accomplished for us. So, if hopefully that makes sense. And if you want, it, you want the longer version, James's talk is there for you to listen to him. So today we're, we're going to be focusing on Psalm 16. And we're going to look at what David was expressing when he wrote it. We're going to be looking at how it's fulfilled in Jesus And then what it means for us to join in and to make this our prayer. And this is a psalm that teaches us how as Christians we can pray with real assurance because of what Jesus has already done for us. So we're going to read, I'm going to read through Psalm 16 and hopefully it will come up behind me. Carmela's on it. Okay. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord... You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lions have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So when we read scripture, most of scripture speaks to us, but it's been said that the Psalms speak for us. They are the words of God to be spoken back to God, But before we can do that, we need to understand what they mean and some of the imagery that they have. So Psalm 16, it starts with a plea. And David, who wrote this psalm, is petitioning God to preserve him, although at this point we don't really know what from. And then he goes on throughout the psalm and he declares and exalts and he rejoices in what God is for him. And there's a a direct relationship between David's plea and his exalting in God. David is entrusting himself to God and expressing his confidence in and also his contentment in God's care of him. And as we understand it more and learn to pray this psalm for ourselves, we're learning to entrust ourselves to God more and to foster in our own hearts a greater confidence and contentment based on biblical truth. So if we look at it in more detail, starting in verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. David is crying out to God to preserve him, to keep him, to save him or to guard him. Basically, he's looking for God's protection over his life. And as we read the Bible and uh, what the Psalms, but read the Bible in general, there are key words that we need to look out for. And the first one here is the word for. He's saying, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Preserve me, God, because 
I'm taking refuge in you. You are my safest refuge. I'm trusting in you. I'm choosing you above other options. And so although it's a, it's a, play, a plea to being preser- uh, preserved, it's not a desperate prayer. It's actually a prayer of faith. It's not preserve me, God, because I'm desperate and I don't know where else to turn to and I've run out of all other options. It's preserve me because I trust in you. There's a direct correlation there. Preserve me, oh God, for in you I take refuge. Then in verse 2 he says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. You are my Lord, you are my master. He's declaring an allegiance to God and he's rejoicing. It's almost a rejoicing as we see as we carry on in God's sovereign rule over his life because he then goes on to say, I have no good apart from you. The Lord is the only one on whom he relies for well-being. It's a really powerful statement to make because he's saying the Lord is my supreme treasure. All other things in his life that are good are good because ultimately they come from God and actually they give him more of God because when he celebrates their goodness and he thanks God for them, they just direct him back to God. Verse 3, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. God's supreme value to David is underlined in in what he says about God's people. The ones who give him pleasure are godly people. He delights in how others treasure and love God. Because when you're with somebody who really, really loves God and they're talking about God and what God's done in them and they're praising God, there's something actually so encouraging about being around somebody like that. And it's just so beautiful that we can... And uh, Tim's talking about communities, but we can be so encouraged by being with others who love God and they talk about God and you see their passion. And he's saying um, that actually I take great delight in other people's relationship with God. It's not like he's looking. It's such an encouragement to him and it's such a blessing to him. Then verse four, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood, I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Not only does he delight in those who love God, he looks at those who don't and he declares, it's crazy to turn away from an all-satisfying God to embrace other gods that are going to leave you full of sorrow in the end. They may promise much, but they're empty promises. Ones that they cannot fulfill. And he's saying when people chase after them, when people are looking for other things to satisfy them, other gods, whatever they may be, there's only ultimately one outcome. Life might look good for a while, but ultimately sorrows will multiply. And he's declaring, I'm not going to fall into that trap, said David. I'm not going to go down that route. And verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And there's lots of imagery here. And there's lots of imagery that we find in the Psalms. 
and um, portion, lot, lines and inheritance, it all speaks of uh, the allocation of land into family plots. So when Israel inherited the uh, promised land, it was divided up according to tribes and families. And so we don't really know whether, whether David is referring to actual borderlines. He's actually talking to his actual borderlines in terms of land or whether he's using this, land, uh, this language figuratively. But he's using it to express his contentment with what he has. God is sovereign. He's in control. You hold my lot. God decides his lot. And just as land is divided up and allocated, God has given him his lot. God rules over his life. He's glad for what he has and for all he's been given. He's declaring that God is in control. But more than that, more than saying God's in control, he's rejoicing in the fact that God is in control. And just as in verse 2, when he declared, I have no good apart from you, he now declares that the Lord is his chosen portion and his cup. And he's basically saying, if I could choose from anything, if I could have anything, if there are a hundred different portions, a hundred different options spread out before him, I would pick God. Other things might look attractive, but they do not compare to knowing God. I have a beautiful inheritance. We often think of our inheritance as things, but not David. He's referring to God. God himself is his inheritance, and he's beautiful. It's not just about what God gives him or what God does for him, but about knowing God himself, being in his presence. And then in verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. So far, David has declared God to be his refuge. He's the one that he delights in, the one who is ultimately in control. But God is also his counsellor. And when we trust in God, we trust that he knows best. God is his refuge because he counsels him how to walk in the way of life and not death. When we're in danger, God counsels us and directs us how to escape. God's teaching is full of wisdom and also promises. And so when we follow his way, when we walk in, according to his commands, then we get to know God more and we learn to delight in him more and more. Verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. To be at someone's right hand is to be their advocate in a court or their support in a battle or even their companion on a journey. And David knew that God was his advocate, his support, that God was with him wherever he went. And that the key word in verse 8 is because, because God is with him, he is confident that he will not be shaken. Therefore, verse 9, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. He started with a plea, which then led to an unshakable confidence and then an overwhelming joy. My whole being rejoices. And the word therefore indicates that his joy is based on what has been said before. 
He rejoices because he's confident that he won't be shaken and he knows he won't be shaken because he knows that God is with him and God is the best thing in his life, which he said in verse 2, and his contentment is in God alone, verses 5 and 6. He didn't start with joy. He started by making God Lord. You are my Lord. Submitting to him, acknowledging who God is, recognising what God has done for him and being thankful, trusting in God's provision, having confidence that God is with him and that he won't be shaken, and then that in turn spills out into joy, which is why it's so important to kind of, when we read those words for and because, to kind of go backwards and to say, well, why is this joy? Where does it come from? And then verse 10 need some water verse 10 you will not abandon my soul to shore or let your holy one see corruption and uh, we know that David died we know that David was buried and you kind of say well yeah this didn't quite happen for David But then we go to the New Testament and we look in Acts 2. And this is Peter's first preach on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 people became Christians. And when he preached that first sermon, he quoted from Psalm 16. And uh, if we read Acts 2 starting at verse 22, it says, Men of Israel, this is uh, Peter speaking. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of goodness with your presence." Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, And of that we are all witnesses. And then uh, Paul also quotes from um, Psalm 16 when he preached in Antioch in Acts 13. And Paul said, therefore, he also says in another psalm, Psalm 16, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. 
Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And of course, he's speaking about Jesus because Jesus is the only one who has conquered death. He was not abandoned in the grave and his resurrection is crucial. And it's because of Jesus's death and resurrection that we can know the forgiveness of sins. That's just saying, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. Our sin separates us from God, but because Jesus paid the price on our behalf, not only do we have forgiveness of sins, but we know that we are made right before God. We are given a righteousness that cannot come through our own works, but only one that comes through trusting in Jesus. Jesus is the only one that has led a perfect life, and it was because he was without sin that he could die in our place. He took our sin and credited to us his righteousness, his perfect life. So when God looks at us, he sees Jesus' righteousness rather than our messed up mistakes. And so David didn't fulfill this, but Jesus did fulfill this in the psalm. And we've read how David expressed in the psalm his desire for God alone. Nothing good comes to me apart from God. And he's declared all these truths, which are amazing. But then we look at it and we say, that's not my experience. And then when we we think about David and we think about his life and we read through his life, then we realize that even though the Bible describes David as a man after God's heart, he made some pretty big mistakes. He didn't always listen to the counsel of God. As we look at David's life, you know, a lot of the time he did, but sometimes he didn't. And there were times when he thought he knew best. But Jesus did set the Lord always before him. He was clear that he he, um, only did what he saw his father doing. And his confidence was totally in God. Even when he prayed in the, the Garden of Gethsemane for the cup to be taken away, he said, not my will be done, but yours. And Hebrews 12 talks about uh, Jesus saying, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the, sh- the shame. Because Jesus knew what David expressed in verse 11. You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus endured the agony and the shame of the cross on on our behalf because he knew there was a greater joy to come. In God's presence, there is a fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And as John Piper says, you can't get fuller than full and you can't get longer than forevermore. So, how do we learn to pray Psalm 16? Well, when we choose to pray through the Psalms, we're not just expressing our heart. What we're doing is we're allowing the words to shape our thinking because they bring us face to face with the reality of who God is. We have to fight that danger of of picking and choosing the attributes of God that we like and um, because we don't, want to, we don't want to relate to God as a, a one-dimensional God. And I've heard people, you know, when I've been talking to people, people say, well, you know, God is love. And uh, God is love. And that's great. But the danger is when they only focus on the God of love, and that's all they ever see God as love. 
And then they block out the bits from the Bible that talk about the holiness of God or the judgment of God. Because it doesn't sit with their image of what they want God to be. So it's easier sometimes to just skip over those bits. So when we pray, we need to have a clear vision of who God is and not how we want him to be. And that means our understanding must be biblical. And this is where praying the Psalms is so helpful because they give us a real insight into not only how does life work and the nitty-gritty of life and the desperate bits and the good bits, but they also give us that openness and, and, and insight into how God operates. And when we pray them, it's important to pray the whole Psalm and don't miss out bits because we, we look at it and kind of go, mm, not sure that's me. <laughs> because those are the bits that are really formative. Because praying the Psalms is not just about using the words because we don't know what to pray or what to say. We pray them so that they shape us. When we find ourselves in difficult situations, we need the, the truth to shape our thinking which in turn will then shape our actions. So we, we need to see the Psalms not as a, we pray them as a, a reaction to our circumstances, but to pray them regularly is to allow the truth that they contain to shape our thinking on a regular basis so that our thinking changes and our belief, and it goes not just head knowledge but our real belief so that when life hits and at some point life always hits we know how to pray we know how to respond and Billy Graham and for all those of you that are a bit younger and you don't know who Billy Graham is he was a famous evangelist and and an amazing man of God and uh, he was really famous for saying that he read five psalms every day and, um, and the reason he read five psalms every day was that meant that he got through the whole book of psalms every month, which meant that at least 12 times a year that he was going through that. And if you, if you read the psalms that often and you meditate on them, then that must have shaped his, the way he prayed, and that must have shaped the way he lived. And um, David's confidence in verse 8 that he will not be shaken comes from declaring and rejoicing in who God is. And this is where we need to remember the sequence of how he got to that place where he could declare that his heart was glad and his whole being rejoiced. Because sometimes we're just not in that place. But he started by saying, you are my safest refuge, I hide in you. You are my sovereign Lord, I acknowledge you, I submit to you. You are my treasure, there is no treasure greater than you, I have no good beside you. In verse 3, he said, of all the amazing people on earth, the ones who give me most delight are the ones who share my love for you, the ones who treasure you too. In verse 5, he said, you are my lot. Or the NIV, it says, my lot is secure. You make my lot secure. He said, the boundary lines of my life enclose me in the pleasure of your presence. You are my trusted counsellor day and night. I treasure your word. Because truth shapes our beliefs. And we need to reaffirm to ourselves the truth about God on a daily basis. It's not enough to have head knowledge. We need to actually take that head knowledge and believe it ourselves. We need to really kind of say, yeah, I believe this for me. Because when we believe it ourselves, it shapes our behaviour. It shapes what we do, our actions. 
And then our actions and our behaviour shape our emotions. And so it's really important that we guard against our emotions shaping our beliefs because then our beliefs shape our view of reality and sometimes that view of reality is not always the right view of reality. It's not always truth. So when David had this confidence uh, in God in verse 8, we should have a greater confidence because we can look to Jesus. And as Christians, we know that Jesus is our representative in heaven. He declared, David declared, the Lord is at my right hand. And in Romans 8 verse 34, it says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. We are not condemned, but we are forgiven. Jesus, who died in our place and was raised again to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding on our behalf. And that is an amazing picture. That is an amazing truth to know that Jesus is praying for us. That is, when, we, when we take that on board, when we realise that, that has got to give us confidence that we will not be shaken Jesus is interceding on our behalf. We know that we're completely forgiven and we're intimately loved because of all that Jesus has achieved through his life and death. It doesn't mean life will be perfect, but whatever storms life might throw us, we we can stand when we seek refuge in God, when we trust in his word, when we follow his counsel, when we make him our priority when we desire and delight in him more than anything else. These things can't be taken from us. God and Jesus and our relationship and the truth and the promises that he makes, other things can be taken from us, but these can't. These are the truths that we stand on when everything else is shaking. In Romans 8.31, it says, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And because of this truth, we can declare that we will not be shaken. We can be full of joy, even though one day, like David, we know that we will die we know that that will not be the end. As Christians, death will not be the end of our relationship with God, nor will death cancel out all that we have known and loved about God. Verse 11 of Psalm 16 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David's heart was glad and his whole being rejoiced because in God's presence there is a fullness of joy and at God's right hand there are pleasures forevermore. We may know joy now, but we know that to come there is a fullness of joy and pleasures that do not diminish and do not run out. There is a joy that is full, that is complete and that lasts. So when we pray, we pray with thanksgiving because we we should acknowledge God and glorify him. And, 
we ask, but it's not just about treating God as a means to gain what we want. But we celebrate and we're thankful for what we do have. David was content with what he had. His lines have fallen for him in pleasant places. That doesn't mean that we don't ask, we do. But we remember that life on earth is not our final destination. We are just passing through this world. And so when we pray, we pray with confidence in eternity. And uh, we can have that mindset, or I have the mindset anyway, sometimes that, that when we, we talk about eternity and we, we talk about praying with confidence for eternity, that that's for people further towards the end of their life. But we all need a view of eternity that brings our life here and now into focus. You know, we're not so good at talking about death or dying, and we don't often preach about it. But this is our hope. We live in a world where everything is about now. We have access to instant credit so we don't have to save up for things. We can get what we want now. Messages, communication, everything is instant. And uh, so is food. You want it now? You just put it in the microwave and we get it now. We're not used to having to wait. And that is why we need to consider eternity now. We live in a culture where more and more we're governed by the fear of missing out. What is it, Tim? FOMO? There we are. Eternity is not just life after death. There is a promise of fullness of joy forevermore. And we need the conviction of this and an understanding of eternity if we are going to delay instant gratification now. So what does it mean for us to pray this psalm? When we make these words our own and we speak them back to God, it's a way of expressing our personal faith in what Jesus has achieved for us. We're declaring that we can take refuge in the gospel. We're telling God and our own souls that he alone can satisfy us. We're pledging ourselves to playing our part and our role in church as part of his holy people and to loving one another. And we're declaring our confidence that he will not abandon our soul to hell. We're celebrating that heaven is real and we will be fully satisfied forevermore and that there is more joy to be found in Jesus than anywhere else. So I'm just going to finish with a, a quote from an author called Ben Patterson. And he said, Prayer is more than a tool for self-expression, a means to get God to give us what we want. It is a means God uses uh, to give us what he wants and to teach us to want what he wants. Holy Scripture in general, and the Psalms in particular, teach us who God is and what God wants to give. When the members of his synagogue complained that the words of the liturgy did not express what they felt, Abraham Heschel, the great philosopher of religion, replied wisely and very biblically. He told them that the liturgy wasn't supposed to express what they felt. They were supposed to feel what the liturgy expressed. To be taught by the Bible to pray is to learn to want and feel what the Bible expresses to say what it means and to mean what it says. So, 
I encourage you to have a go at praying Psalm 16, to make it your own, to let the truth shape you and to increase your confidence, not in yourself or in your situation, but in what Jesus has already done and the promise of what is to come.